Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Season 2, Episode 4, Just Stay Alert. Hello, everyone. Oh, it is so good to be together, isn't it? I'm delighted so many of you listened in on the bonus episodes between seasons. You know, if you haven't yet had a chance, you might want to take a listen. And if you are a Patreon patron, I hope you are, you get to hear three special interviews in their entirety. The first with Mary Ellen McNally, the angel who followed her intuition to be in the right place at the right time, literally, to catch me as I fell from weariness in Cape May in that first week. And the second interview with Rachel Wall, the courageous mediator who mediated for Billy and me just days after Archer's accident, as our lives were turning upside down by the chaos. Rachel shares a rare inside look through her mediator's eyes at two people in trauma. And lastly, an interview that is a real treat with Loretto Kane, a Microsoft executive and member of religious service group that serves the sick and poor, who were part of igniting a national prayer chain for Archer. We had a conversation about the power of collective prayer of friends and the power of technology for the global ripples of what is possible. And I love hearing from so many of you. And shout out to Linda, a judge in Virginia, who wrote to tell me that she has been incorporating many of the trauma healing learnings and insights from season one daily as she presides over cases in court. She is focused on making sure people feel heard and respected in her courtroom. She told me she has found that making sure people feel really heard leads to a healthier court system that better serves the community and helps de-escalate conflict. She has even been able to, every once in a while, let small children who must accompany a parent to court in cases where, say, a single parent has no childcare options, come up to sit with her so the child can see what it is like to be a judge to lessen the trauma impact for the child of being in court and vicariously for the parent. At first, she said, the courtroom personnel and staff were a little surprised, but it didn't take long for everyone to see how much joy this small act brings to children, converting a stressful experience into a positive one. Linda, You are an inspiration to us. I am so moved by the stories of how so many of you are applying new learnings and insights to your own life. 
keep the stories coming as we can inspire each other. You can write to me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. You know, inspiration is so much about the trauma healing journey and how we do inspire each other. Children in courtrooms, parents in courtrooms, these are often traumatic experiences. I know it well, as I was a litigator in my early years of law practice, and it was that overwhelming, stressful experience that I knew my clients were experiencing that I, too, experienced. Not to mention that it was exhaustively expensive. That's what propelled me to a career in mediation. What I found over the years, though, as a transformative mediator, is how important it still is to people who feel wronged or hurt to have their day in court, regardless of the outcome, to essentially get on the record. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Well, it was this day in the story. I was struggling with this too. I felt something was wrong beyond just the horror of his paralysis. And I was searching for medical answers. And I was getting none. I'll explore that in the accompanying trauma healing learnings, the critical impact that a gentle grounding in reality and information can have for someone experiencing trauma. And I also want to explore the traumatic experience of uncertainty and how best to respond. So that's what it was like behind the scenes on this day in the story. Archer was suffering and life was tentative. Everything was unknown. So settle in. Settle your heart. Settle your spirit. Something awaits you. Here we go. Life can change. In the blink of an eye. August 15th. Saturday. Day 11. I had no idea of what an intensive care unit is like. I didn't. I had never been in one before. And even after 10 days in one, morning, noon, and night, I still did not understand it. It's just not like an everyday experience or even a once in a lifetime experience to live in an ICU for a while. Not that many people wind up in a trauma ICU. At least I pray they do not but I guess many do. Well, I felt this urge to be alert about everything, but I didn't know what to be on alert for, quite frankly. It was a day of rest for Archer, which meant no visitors and a different team of medical staff, nurses and techs. I was still trying so hard find out from staff why Archer's blood pressure had been so high that it seemed to cause a seizure and that he had that episode where his head almost exploded, blood even oozing out of his ears. 
God, is that part of a spinal cord injury? For over four days, I had been asking for answers. It just didn't make sense to me, that ghastly episode. And watching Archer in the silent scream, where he looked like he was in excruciating pain. He looked like he was electrocuted. I also wanted to know about that heart attack. I knew, okay, that's separate. At least I think it is. I think it was. But was that too part of spinal cord injury? It just didn't make sense to me either. I knew Archer's accident was really bad. And I knew he had broken his neck. But what was happening to him? Part of his injury? I was so confused. Dr. Radcliffe had told me his broken neck, now set with a lot of titanium plates and rods, wouldn't cause him any pain. But none of it made sense to me. Because I saw with my own eyes Archer in the most intense, contorted pain I had ever witnessed in anyone in my whole life. And then they had pumped him full of fentanyl. So I know it was excruciating. And now we're just waiting for his vitals to bounce back. I know they will. But was this related to the spinal cord injury? One doctor yesterday had said it was a hiccup. What did that mean? I couldn't get any answers. I remember what was running through my mind over and over. A loop. Archer Sempt is a perfectly healthy, athletic 17-year-old. He has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure. He has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure. He's had an injury. He has a healthy heart. He doesn't have high blood pressure over and over. And I was scanning our life. I took him for healthy checkups when he was a child to our pediatrician and for sports. And there was nothing wrong with him. And he had stress tests for sports. Nothing was wrong with him. Why did these things happen? Why was he in excruciating pain like I've never witnessed before in my life? Why is he still biting down on his ventilator tube? Why was it blood pressure in the 200s? Didn't make sense. I wanted to get to the bottom of why it happened. I needed answers. The air in Archer's room felt stifling to me. It was. I felt there was wrongness or badness or darkness, something. I felt there was evil in that room. I did. The hairs on my arms told me there was something and to be alert. So I scanned the room for anything I could use to shoo away darkness from Archer so he could live, so he could breathe, so his heart would beat, and to keep the air in that room moving. I wanted life in that room. You might think this is crazy, and it was a little, but I took a hospital towel and quickly went to all the corners of his room 
waving that towel around the open toilet, around the cabinet, and I shooed away any dead air to try to get some airflow in that room. I moved quickly and all over the room, almost dancing around like some crazy ritual. It was more frenzied, though, and I was intense. I tried to open the windows of the hospital room on the third floor, but they didn't open. So I opened and flapped the large curtain that hung separating our room from the hallway, and I shooed that nasty air out there. Bring us some new air! As I sat back down next to Archer, I spied that small glass bottle just an inch or so in height peppermint oil that had been delivered by the pharmacy earlier yesterday, which they had waved under Archer's nose to revive him, trying to wake him up. I had another idea of what to do with that peppermint oil. I scanned the room and counted the corners. I knew there was a pile of neatly folded white terry cloth, hospital grade washcloths stacked in that drawer because I used them regularly to mop Archer's brow to help him with that fever. I opened the drawer and lifted six of them off the pile and dabbed them with peppermint oil. (laughs) No, I actually liberally doused them with peppermint oil. Oh yeah, baby, you could smell peppermint oil distinctly everywhere. It was even eye-opening for me. Actually, it was almost eye-stinging. I told Archer I would be right back, even though he lay motionless and emotionless, so faint. That curtain between the room and the hallway was still flung back, and I stepped out into the hall, and I walked quickly to the ice maker station, and I got a stack of styrofoam cups. And when I returned... I placed one of the saturated peppermint oil washcloths in each cup, and I placed each cup in one of those corners of Archer's room. I did. I had to move that energy that I felt was so stagnant, lingering around Archer. Not in this room, no. You know, negative energy collects in corners and spaces that have not had life in them. And I wanted to feel life. And I wanted to feel that ground of support. And I wanted fresh air into that room. Answers. Bring me answers to what had happened a few days ago when Archer's blood pressure shot so mercilessly high. But try as I might, none of the nurses would talk with me. I wonder if you have ever been in such a situation in a hospital where you know something has gone wrong, but you really don't know because you're just a person. You're not an expert with a medical background. You think something has gone wrong, but you just don't know. I mean, maybe something hasn't gone wrong, but you're going by common sense, you know? And what doesn't make sense, at least I was. And you ask, but your questions fall on deaf ears. No, worse than that, 
the medical staff literally turns their backs on you. That is what was happening all day long. And honestly, the more they ignored me, the more I felt something went wrong. It's not easy in ICUs. And I'm sure it's not easy for medical staff either. I'm so sure of that. There's no way it could be. How do they stay working in a place like this? I felt my mind scanning everything. I was on alert for what could harm us. I was on alert for anything they'd say. And I also remember having these little flickers of thought throughout the day. How do they work here day in and day out? I felt we were in a hellhole. And I felt totally reliant on them. But none of them, none of them were holding my hand, giving me any assurances, walking through this experience with us. They were giving me no information at all. And so I also felt at odds with them. I did not want to feel this way. But it was building this growing separation between us. And I didn't understand it. Why would medical staff, who know what's going on, not explain it to me? Why would medical staff, who know what you don't know, not teach you so that you could know too? I could help them if they did because... I would know what to look for when they weren't there. I could help them help Archer. I had a set of eyes and ears, and I was glued to Archer. Use my eyes to help him, please. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't do any of that. It was as if I was not even there in their eyes. I remember thinking, why is that? I felt that distance they were putting between us. I did. Over five years later, I had a chance to interview Christy Holden, a trauma nurse. She works in Boston and is a listener of Blink of an Eye. I've been wanting to understand more about the nurse experience through the eyes of a nurse who is trauma-informed. This is an excerpt of a longer interview you may want to listen to in full. Um, well, I guess I'll start as, you know, a background of being an emergency room nurse for 30 plus years, and I still do that job, but I've done this sexual assault work for 25 years. Um, and I think that the, you know, trauma-informed lens that we now like approach and treat our patients with is is something that I've learned you know I feel like not so recently but I've probably been doing it for 10 years um we you know our everything that we do is um, centered around the patient and, and in that trauma-informed lens 
they truly are a trauma patient. They may not look like it on the outside, but their brain has, you know, been through trauma. So I think, you know, the, um, how am I trying to say this? The focus for me has changed in a way that is, um, you know, the goal is, you know, meeting the patient where they're at, empowering them and trying to get them through this traumatic experience, which they've been through. You know, how the brain takes in trauma and how it processes trauma is different for everybody. Yeah. And it's gonna look different. And, you know, it, it's, you can have a, I can have a patient that's sitting there and, you know, crying, sobbing, which is what everyone thinks you should, you know, be doing after a sexual assault. But, you know, that's not the case. They're in a room, number one, they're safe at the moment with me. Um, and, you know, you can, uh, every emotion I think is the patient's emotion. You know, how their brain is processing this trauma is just very different on any kind of level. To be trauma-informed is, is, you know, to sit with them, to listen, to have empathy. It's helpful and hopeful for me to have these look-back conversations, not only to understand, but to feel understood, because the experience of trauma can be very alienating and discombobulating. As you become either hyper-aroused, needing a lot of information, or you become numb, almost unable to respond. The more aware we are of these natural human reactions to trauma, the more trauma-informed we can be for potential change for good. And when professionals working with people who have experienced trauma understand about this trauma experience, we can all respond differently, more effectively, more compassionately. Perhaps you will exercise your influence for healing with these new awarenesses and insights. So back to the story. I was getting more and more worked up. And I was getting mad. And I was getting almost haughty. How dare they not talk to me? It was not a relationship I would relish having with anyone. That silence, that distance, well, it was creating suspicion. At least it was for me. Why would anyone in a trauma ICU so fragile and so dependent on staff ever want or even think about being suspicious of the quality of care. Well, I think it was happening because no one was giving me the information and my brain was starting to fill in the gaps. I did find myself blaming them for something they did and I didn't even know what it was that they did. And then I chastised myself for blaming them 
and even feeling suspicious. In the hospital, for Lord's sake, I'd say to myself, they're experts. Who was I? But were they the experts? Oh, it was a pressure cooker in my brain, an unending dead end loop. It's so ironic because we needed them and their care so desperately and their expertise so badly. But what was most fractured in that room was not Archer's neck. It was trust, trust in the medical staff. I cannot tell you how absolutely horrible and helpless that feeling was. And yes, it was their silence, their deaf ears, their unseen eyes, my feeling invisible, walled off by them. That was so distressing. No information as they did things to my son. And I thought I was going crazy. Didn't I have to consent? I felt so disempowered. And I was beginning to not trust anything that was happening in the hospital. That's not a good place to be. Where does information enter that? I was asked some pretty tough questions by a you know, very successful young professional woman. Information is so important to these patients, but it's so, you know, I know as a, as a nurse and as an ER nurse, like, in, you know, you're giving someone information, they're getting 10, 20% of what, what you're saying. So what is that delicate balance that you strike when someone in trauma has a lot of questions for you, some of which you know that you really can't answer because it's their experience and others that you know that you can and, and they could be very helpful uh, pieces of information. How do you discern and which, how do you navigate that? Mm. Because I, I, I really, and I'm on this day in the, in the story in terms of our look back where mm. I was desperately seeking information mm. uh, that no one would give me uh, for something that had gone desperately wrong. Well, I think if it's like, if you don't know, you don't know, (laughs) you know, I'm not sure what happened, you know, and in that, like those questions from her, like, should I report this? I can't make that decision for anybody. You know, I have no idea what the criminal process will look like for, for anybody. I find there's nothing wrong with, especially in any of my nursing profession, you know, if, if I don't know the answer, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't know the answer. Yeah. You know, I can't, I, I, a lot with, I, you know, I'll try to find the answer, of course, um, or get someone to talk to you that can try to find the answer. Um, but it may be that you don't know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there is that piece of, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. You don't know. It would have been okay for me to. We all don't have answers to everything but I knew something was just not right by the silence. It was actually my body that knew something was not right. I felt it, but I was aware of what suspicion can conjure up too. So I needed to understand all these machines 
and find out if I was just on overdrive or if there really had been something that had gone wrong. We had been there over a week. Things continued getting worse. I needed to understand those machines and what they meant. And the staff knew. I needed to know. But that's not how they saw it. I don't know. Maybe they were right in their eyes. They were the experts. But I did need to know. And the main reason was trust. My sense of empowerment was slipping away. And as it did, so was my ability to trust them. Well, I wanted to trust them. But no one was responding. You know, sharing information, even hard, difficult information, can help to restore trust if done in the right way. It's more like, can I trust you? Yeah. And some of the silly, simple things that you don't even think about is like sitting at someone's eye level, like listening, like truly listening. I think that that's one of the major changes for us. It's a privilege to try to empower them because that's what we're really trying to do is to empower them. Couldn't someone just tell me what all the numbers on the machines mean? I've been introduced to something called PEEP by one of the pulmonologists. I wanted to understand PEEP and pressure on Archer's lungs and what was irregular on a heart monitor. If they had only known how helpful, simple, but solid information can be when you feel so helpless, maybe they would have taken the time to explain to me. But they didn't. And I began to wonder, did anyone really know what was happening to Archer? And I began to feel more helpless. But you know what? I realized how combative that helpless feeling made me. I mean, I'm a conflict expert for Lord's sake. I've been teaching this stuff for years. And I know there are different responses in conflict. And I know there are different responses in trauma including feeling shut down. But wow, was I ever amazed at the fighting instinct it brought up in me. I was not going to let them keep doing things to Archer that I could not understand. And is that so bad? I was watching and monitoring my own thoughts. It was crazy. I wonder if you have ever experienced this kind of loopiness. Maybe you've observed your own high conflict reaction patterns and just how fast the mind can race when triggered and in a suspicion loop. Yeah, you will know what I mean if you have ever been in a situation where you've been hurt or deeply let down or really wronged before. And you're now in this new situation and it's high pressure and it's constantly changing. But you're on this hyper alert because you know what can go wrong. Or you're just filling in the gaps because you don't have any reliable information to tell you otherwise or a reliable messenger of the information. 
Yes, the mind is processing at lightning speed, on high alert. All the while, emotions surge from one extreme to the other. Well, that's how it was for me. When I really pressed a couple nurses for information, and I confess I did, I said, look, this is my son. Think if it were your son. If you don't have any answers for me, just tell me who does. I'm not going to stop asking. Two nurses of the many told me I could call the hospital administrator. Okay, that was something. Well, that was two days ago and again yesterday. I did a search for administration phone numbers, of which there were many, and I began making phone calls to all of them. When I thought I got to the right place, I spoke with someone taking messages and left my request for a meeting with the hospital administrator regarding what had gone wrong in Archer Semp's medical records and quality care in room 3117. The whole day went by and I hadn't received a call back. Nothing. I placed another call the next day. I heard nothing. I really did feel stonewalled. But there were the texts that continued to pour in from friends and family that I've told you about. Each one would bring me a smile as I sat hyper-focused watching Archer's monitors, watching Archer, waiting for him to turn the corner, praying for him to turn the corner. And then I'd read one of those text messages and I'd take a breath and I'd feel restored or hopeful or connected or something other than desperate and suspicious. And then my attention would turn when another nurse or technician would enter Archer's room through the drawn curtain. I was trying to keep it closed to muffle some of the loud bells and harsh alarm sounds of the trauma ICU hallways. And as soon as the staff person got near Archer's bed, I would laser beam my focus of attention on getting information. And I was getting more assertive about it because I was angry and I was feeling shut out from what was mine to know. I was Archer Semp's mother. This was our life. The exchanges with the medical staff went something like this each time. Me. Hi, thanks for taking care of Archer. What are you doing now? I would get either silence or various forms of my job or doing what I always do or I'm trying to check. I would then ask, what are you checking? I would often get silence again as they went about whatever they were doing, almost blocking me out. I respected that they were busy and I knew there were others to take care of as well. But I also knew I had a son 
in bad shape and I needed information. And if I couldn't ask and get information and advocate for him, then who could? All I wanted was good care for my son. And I felt as if they had been told not to talk to me. It didn't make sense. And it did make sense. Something has gone wrong here. My old litigator's stomach tightened that there had been a wrong. A handful of staff volunteered the following, but it was the same loop. Hi, again, I'd say. What are you checking now? And a nurse would say, I'm checking his stats, the ones who had talked to me. And I'd say, which ones? What do they tell you? And she'd be silent. And then she'd say, we're just checking what's in the doctor's orders. And I'd say, what is in the doctor's orders? And she'd say, to check his stats. And I'd say, may I see the orders? And there was always a large silence. I never knew why. Sometimes she'd turn around and leave. Sometimes she'd totally ignore me. And other times, staff told me, I don't think I'm supposed to give them to you. Or, I guess you could make a records request. Right, I'd say to myself. And go leave Archer, wait in line, and be told it's just 30 days before I'd see them when what I want to understand today is what is happening today and what happened days ago. And I'd feel my anger surging again. And I'd say to the nurse, why can't you just show me? And she'd say, you have to ask the doctor. So I'd say, can you please ask one of the doctors to come see us? And before you go, can you tell me what the numbers on just this one machine mean? I'd point to one of Archer's nine monitors. And I'd often get this response. I have other patients and need to go. I was getting nothing. And on and on it went. The dead end loop. And then my mind would meander to wondering how the staff could be so robotic. And then my compassion mind would wander to how hard it must be for them if they had just now turned into robots. And then my judgment mind would wander and say, how could they be so heartless and spineless, lacking moral fiber to stand up and help me, even if they had been told to be silent, which is what I had convinced myself that they had been told. Oh yeah, I was in full-blown crazy mode and I was ramping up. I was actually desperate to figure out how we could work together. 
I knew I could help them to help Archer and it just wasn't happening. And then I'd get mad and I was aware of the story I was playing in my head and my knee-jerk reactivity that they didn't know what they were doing. Oh, but I didn't want to be at odds with them. I didn't. I wanted to work with them. I wanted them to be smart and intelligent and see me as smart and intelligent so we could do this together and care about him. I desperately wanted to trust them. It was crazy. And in my helplessness, I would go back to praying and asking God, help me, Lord, rely on you. Help me to trust you. It's hard to trust in the Lord when you're trying to be so reliant on others. I guess I wanted both. I wanted them to take care of Archer really well. And I wanted God to help us make sense of this. I was in and out of feeling lost and getting more and more agitated as the day wore on. And I was losing track of time, even what day it was. There was so much happening around Archer. And there was so little. It's just another one of those paradoxical things in, a, in an ICU. A lot of data, but nothing being shared. A lot of activity, but time seemed frozen. I did try to put myself in their shoes, medical staff. Maybe they thought I was crazy. I did feel crazy. But if only they could understand what it is like on the other side. It had been a full two days without visitors now. And it was also as if I began watching Archer from afar. Multiple teams were in and out of room 3117. Whenever staff came in, I'd step aside from his bed. I was putting myself in a bubble, getting out of their way, but also distancing myself from them. Oh, Hail Mary, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Five years later, the chief of trauma at Atlantic Care Hospital in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Dr. Raymond Tolucci, granted me an interview. I know, it's rare. I admire his willingness and his honesty. And you'll hear more from Dr. Tolucci as we continue in the story. Here's an excerpt. I mean, I, I have a question. I mean, you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I have a question for you. I mean, when, when did you have enough confidence in us that you actually began to trust what we were telling you? Was there a day, was there ever a day that occurred? Or did you always doubt what was done? Or, you know, did you think that? My confidence began to improve when I got a little piece of information that all of the 
doctors, you know, stroking their chins and saying around Archer's heart attack that it just didn't make sense, or, you know, or maybe it's because of the trauma itself, but, you know, we haven't really seen this. There were different things like from the beginning, I was told it was just a little hiccup. And then when the pulmonary guy came in and said, that's really, no, we don't see that. Um, that's not a hiccup. Those simple words of one of the few people who would give me information, one of the rotating pulmonologists familiar with Archer's case, who said, that's not a hiccup. Let me know. I was not imagining things. You have no idea my relief. Yes, one of the nurses had relayed my request to please send a doctor. And even though it was Saturday, a pulmonologist did come to see me. Bless him. Thank you, nurse. It was hardly good news, but it was information. And you know what? It was even more than that. I was getting used to what I will call terrible, usual information. The kind related to a severe broken neck and a severed spinal cord that I was learning about at what seemed the same rate as the staff was learning about it too. And it wasn't good. But what that pulmonologist told me, those few words, that information, it was not the terrible usual. That information was the terrible unusual. And every hair on my arms were standing up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, it is what I had sensed. I knew, but I didn't know. But I knew that incident that happened with Archer's high blood pressure was not a hiccup. I had to understand more for Archer. We could not just be at the whim of medical staff who might not know what they were doing. And that's how I felt. And I honestly believe that that's what God was helping me to see. And I had to separate that out. And I needed to rely on God. I closed my eyes and I moved my chair away from Archer's bed a few feet so I could think. Please, Lord, help me to know what to do now. I think this is what it must be like for many families, and perhaps especially families grappling with a catastrophic spinal cord injured family member in a trauma ICU. There is not much known across hospitals in the United States about spinal cord injuries. And there is not much known about trauma-informed care. Well, I didn't know that then. But I was learning that Archer's situation was complex. I could see that. And I could see it was tricky for staff who may not have known what to do either. 
I could see that too. But the problem was, was Archer Sempt harmed? And I had so many questions. I wanted to trust them so much. I wanted to. Please talk to me. Please tell me. That was my prayer. Please, Lord, please give them the courage to talk to me. And then a most extraordinary thing happened. I looked over in a corner by the entrance and that small little African-American woman was back with her mop, quietly mopping. Where did she come from? She was so quiet. She mopped a little closer to me and I felt her presence. And I wanted to connect with her. And I said, hello, it's good to see you. She was quiet. She mopped a little closer. She tilted her head slightly to the right. As she talked without lifting her head, she leaned on her mop, still mopping talking to me. She said, I see you suffering. And she glanced around the room, keeping her head down. It was the nurse who put the pressures in his bag. Nurse has been sent home for a few days. I felt suspended and in two worlds. The doctor came in again and said, your son is not coming around. But I knew he would. There was a mistake. I could feel it. And now I knew we had to get to the bottom of it. Archer would come around. It was just a mistake. It's not his injury. They had to believe he would come around. I tore out a piece of paper from my Walgreens notebook and I wrote, to whom it may concern in the hospital administration, this is Louise Fipsempt. I'm in room 3117, third floor of your trauma ICU with my son, Archer Sempt, who is your patient. I am his mother. He is a minor. I have left messages with no answers. I would like a face-to-face meeting today to discuss what happened here with my son's medical care. If there has been a mistake, I need to know. I don't want to sue you. I just want answers. Please call me. And I left my phone number. Yep, that's what I wrote. It had occurred to me that I was not getting responses because they were afraid. And I didn't know if they knew or not that I was a lawyer by background. I didn't want that to chill any potential for getting information. In fact, if anything, it would make for a very important conversation. And I meant it. I had no desire to sue them. All I wanted 
was answers. My brother and sister had arrived from Illinois. Oh gosh, I was so grateful to have them with me and at Archer's side so I could also leave to deliver that written request. I took the note to the front desk and asked if they could deliver it to the hospital administration. They told me the office was actually in the same building right above us. Well, I was even more hopeful for a meeting. I felt the new air in that room and I felt some healing grace. We're close for now. But before we do, I just have to tell you another remarkable thing that happened. Thanks to my brother, Cookie Phillips. While I was trying to create a room of fresh air, he arrived and examined the heavy curtain that separated our room and discovered there was actually a sliding glass door, like a pocket door. Yes, it was not being used. And it wasn't being used in the other rooms either, as best as I could tell. So we tried to pull it shut. Well, it was broken. It was off the track. But he was able, with the help of a medical tech, to get it back on the tracks. And we slid it shut. It was incredible. We had a room of fresh air. It was as if the crazy, constant, harsh ringing alarm sounds of the ICU just got muted. I thought it was magical. And I felt very hopeful. And that maybe I could create a room for healing. Come on, Arch. I know you will turn the corner, my love. He also seemed to revive with seeing or knowing his Aunt Lillian and Uncle Tripper were there. Archer knew as I did the effort it took for both of them to come all the way from Illinois. It was midnight again. Billy had begged me to change places with him and Paula. He wanted me to rest. He promised me he would keep his eyes on Archer all night and that he would text me if anything bad happened. Promise? I remember saying more than a few times. I was grasping at straws for solid ground and real information. I know that's a truism now for people experiencing trauma. Yeah, we need the truth, the whole truth, and we need reliable messengers. I realize now the erosion of the last few days had had on me. I felt the only person I could trust was myself. That is actually a dangerous place to be psychologically. And it's how it was. And I get it, how that can happen. It's just another insidious outcome of the adverse experience of trauma of abandonment, of being let down in serious ways by those who are supposed to keep you safe. It's pretty understandable. It's also devastating. 
You might relate to that in your life. But I could not have told you all of this at that time. It was even affecting my relationship with Billy. All I could do was beg Billy, don't let me down. I told him, it would be cruel if you hold back on information. I have a right to know, Billy. Even if it's terrible, I remember saying that to him. And I remember vividly telling him, it's not love, Billy, if you withhold information from me. He and Paula promised as Paula shook her head up and down vigorously. She knew what I meant. I walked out of the ICU and got into the car. She and Billy had double parked with the hazard lights on, waiting for me to drive it home. Before I pulled away, I sent this text message. Archer is resting comfortably with all vials improved from this time yesterday. Billy and Paula are spending the night watching Chop and reading to him from the book Susha. Today is the first day where things seem to be steadily moving in the right direction. Archer's spirits are better. Please keep your prayers coming. Let's all take in a breath of gratitude. Gratitude for reliable information. For family. Family who can join you on the roller coaster ride, even if just for one ride. But that one day of showing up makes all the difference. And that one messenger who shows up makes all the difference. And I began to realize something profound. Archer's vitals got better when he had connection with others who loved him. I saw it on the monitor. It was going to be a delicate balancing act because the staff had asked us to have no visitors and I know he needed rest, but he also needed family and friends in that hospital. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You may tune in to the Trauma Healing Learnings that accompany this story this Saturday at Trauma Healing Learning Episode 4. Stay alert. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.